Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll begin today with Governor Gretchen Whitmer and her take on the current state of the pandemic. Will we see the return of statewide action? Will there need to be field hospitals to relieve the overwhelmed medical system? Then we're going to have a conversation about defending democracy a day after the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection with libertarian scholar Sheikha Dalman. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. And as always, thanks for tuning in. So 2022 is going to be a really big year for Governor Gretchen Whitmer's administration. We are entering the third year of the COVID-19 pandemic, a public health crisis that has shaped just about every aspect of the governor's tenure since early 2020. And it's an election year for the governor and for the state legislature, which will further complicate efforts to pass major pieces of legislation. Governor Gretchen Whitmer joins us now to talk about all of it. Governor, Happy New Year and welcome back to Detroit Today. Happy New Year, Stephen. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah. So let's start here. Things look, at least from a statistical standpoint, as bad as maybe they have ever been during the pandemic for us here in Michigan. Um, I I just want to give you a couple minutes to talk about where you think we are, what maybe you think we're not doing that we should be doing, uh, and when you think the tide may turn. It, it seems like this whole thing goes in fits and starts. We get a few steps ahead, and then something yanks us back. Right now, it's Omicron, but, uh, but as I said, the stats really, I think, have us all very concerned. Yeah, I, I, I think we all should be concerned, you know. This is a moment none of us want to be in, right? I think when we disagree and don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, the one universal truth is none of us wants to be talking about COVID anymore, and yet it's still a very real part of our lives. I think we all thought by this point it would be behind us, and we know that viruses mutate. I don't think any one of us would have predicted that it would continue to be so serious at this juncture, but that's where we are, and that's why... I think it's really important people know this this variant is so easy to catch and the the i think part of perspective right now that's important is it's not as uh can't cannot be as intense for people especially if you're vaccinated and boosted and that's why availing ourselves of these vaccines getting the booster as soon as you're eligible to do that is the best way to stay out of the hospital in the early days of COVID, the message was avoid catching this virus. Do everything you can. And that's why we, you know, stayed in our home. Now it is recognizing at some point we're going to come into contact with us. Have we done everything we can to keep ourselves alive and keep ourselves out of the hospital? And that's by being boosted. Mm-hmm. We know that this particular variant appears to um, move quickly. And we anticipate it's going to be a tough four to six weeks ahead. It could be longer. We don't know for sure, but um, we've got to we've got to each do our part to stay out of the hospital and to stay safe. And um, I mean, mask wearing it means pulling back from social engagements, and it means um, getting vaccinated and boosted. So uh, I'm listening to you talk, and I guess one of the things. I'm hearing is maybe that you have backed away entirely from the idea of statewide action that would keep people apart, that would mandate uh, things like masks, um, the things that we were doing in 2020 to stay away from each other. Have you 
given up on those altogether? I would never say we've given up on anything. We are moving forward. We are educating. We are ensuring that people have access to vaccines and to um, monoclonal antibodies to stay out of the hospital. We'll continue to do that work. But where we were, uh, you know, almost two years ago was confronting a virus we knew nothing about. We didn't know how it spread. We certainly didn't have vaccines. We're in a very different position now. Every person has the tool to avail themselves of to stay safe. Now, some can't do it, right? Some people are immunocompromised. Some people are on the front line, like our nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists and our teachers who are exposed every day. And that's why as a community, as a society, when each of us does our part, it inures to the collective good. And that's why um, we're, we're relying and, and pushing and encouraging people to to do their part. We've all got to get through this together and using those blunt tools that we had to use in the early days um, aren't the ways to get the unvaccinated vaccinated at this juncture. And that's, that's really what our focus needs to be. When you look at our hospitals and you see largely who is filling those beds and compromising all of our health, it's largely the unvaccinated. And that's where our efforts really need to be focused. So, uh, let's talk about hospitals. Uh, Beaumont here in Southeast Michigan sent out a massive email blast last night that says, we are at a breaking point. Uh, what, what measures do you have to consider as governor to prevent hospitalizations from crippling the healthcare system? Are, are there things that you may have to do, like considering the idea of large field hospitals again, for instance, uh, if the system continues to be overloaded? So we have been working very closely throughout the pandemic with our hospital leadership. Um, Beaumont, you know, every hospital leader has had a seat at the table. We've had an ongoing dialogue. We've gotten some help from the federal government in terms of um, enhancing our ability to meet the needs of, of community across the across the state in a variety of hospital settings. Uh, we're going to continue to do that, continue to try to get these monoclonal antibodies out there. This variant, unfortunately, doesn't respond to some of the monoclonal antibodies that are available. And so um, that's part of the, the changing um, landscape here. But certainly we're, we're trying to do everything we can to support Beaumont, but every hospital system, because they are all um, feeling the weight of this this latest surge of, of patients. Yeah. And I think yeah. we have to remember, right, that when you see these hospital beds filling up, it's largely being filled up by unvaccinated people. This is preventable. This truly is preventable. And that's why um, anyone with a platform who maybe speaks to those who are unvaccinated yet that can encourage and educate, we ask people to use it. Now is a really important time, and every one of us is at risk if our hospital systems are at breaking points like we know Beaumont is at the moment. So I also want to talk about testing, and I have to say up front, I am someone who's now in need of a of a COVID test because I was exposed to someone who tested positive. I've spent the week really trying to get into some place uh, that that I could get that done and get the results uh, pretty quickly. I've I've live in the city of Detroit and and now they've announced that uh, they're doing a thousand tests a day at two different sites and that's in fact where I'm going to end up uh, getting it. But I think there's no question that we need to be able to make testing more available and more affordable in many parts of the state. Tell me what you think can be done to help achieve that. Yeah, I can tell you that, you know, at the state level, we've been shipping tests out to our local partners who, um, you know, are doing everything they can to make sure that the public has access to timely testing. It's a struggle. Um, it's a struggle nationally. And uh, we have put in more orders with the, the federal government to make sure that we've got more tests coming in. We've had some success on that front, but um, this variant is just so contagious that uh, so many people need tests now. So we've gotten, we've gotten them for our, our students. We are getting them to our local departments of public health. But um, I think nationally, 
we, there is a shortage. And so we've done everything we can to make sure that Michigan's at the top of the list. And we've placed our orders and we've prioritized this in the budget. And we'll continue to do that. But certainly I know people are, are, are worried and stressed out and, and frustrated. And I am as well. And that's why my whole team continues to work to get more tests into Michigan. Hmm. So um, I, I also want to press you a little bit on the question of field hospitals. I mean, that was something that we did kind of try back in uh, late 2020. Uh, is that something that we're going to have to put on the table right now? I mean, should you should you be preparing to open big, uh, larger facilities to deal with the the overflows that are coming out of the hospital systems? I can tell you that that conversation has never stopped. Um, you know, since our first experience of, of getting prepared to have one and being grateful we didn't need to utilize them in the way that we thought we might to today, that has always been a um, possibility and something that we have, have kept on the back burner. One of the issues with a field hospital is staffing. And we know that just in our traditional hospital settings, we are understaffed as it is. Um, and so that is a complicating factor I share with you as, as one part of the consideration that we're continuing to assess. But if and when that becomes clearly necessary, we will move forward with it. But mm. at this juncture, um, there are a lot of different parts of the uh, analysis that, um, that are going to inform whether or not we, that's something that we utilize. Yeah. Uh, Governor, I know I've got to let you go, but before I do, I really want to get you to talk just a bit about your priorities uh, for this year other than COVID and uh, put them in the context of the elections that uh, are, are going to happen in November. We all know it's a little harder to get things done when everybody's thinking about uh, the ballot box, but uh, what do you hope to accomplish? Well, I think at the end of last year, we really had um, a great victory in terms of a bipartisan effort to ensure that we've got economic development tools that make Michigan competitive. We showed the world we can work together and we can move quickly. That's, that's great. It's, it's turning a decades-old narrative on its head that Michigan was slow. We didn't have tools. We couldn't work together. We showed in a matter of less than two months that we could actually do all of those things. So I think we're going to have um, some great opportunities in front of us. I'll be introducing a budget soon. And as I think about how we ensure that this economic comeback is equitable and um, sustainable, uh, we prioritize on education and skills, those same fundamentals, infrastructure, whether it's broadband, water, or roads and bridges. And focusing, I think, on ensuring that there's real opportunity for everyone in the state. Um, and, and talking about mental health, too, there's a really um, important aspect to our recovery that is uh, universal truth. We've all been through a lot uh, to varying degrees. We have, um, we're going to take a lot of stress with us, and we've got to address that. So there are a lot of different pieces to an equitable economic comeback that uh, you'll see reflected in the state of the state and then the budget um, that will be uh, in the next couple of weeks. And, and I'm excited. And I think the first two quarters of this year are really important for us to stay focused on that common ground for, for the state of Michigan and, and not the politics of the fall. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, uh, I'd also be remiss in not asking quickly uh, how your husband Mark is doing. Uh, we, we did learn that uh, he, he had tested positive for COVID earlier this week. Uh, I, I know that you continue to test negative, but I know how hard it is uh, to, to be caring for someone who, uh, who's got this, uh, this disease and, and may need uh, extra support. How is he doing? Thank you for asking. You know, Mark is doing okay. He's um, boosted, and so I think that's really um, helped alleviate some of the intensity of what he might have otherwise been experiencing. He lost his taste yesterday, but he is isolated. And um, while we have no idea how he came into contact with it and how no one else in the family seems to have, have gotten it, we're mm. grateful that we found out and we could isolate him and, and that he's having a, a pretty mild experience because he's boosted. So hopefully others will 
hear that and, and go out and get their booster if they're eligible and haven't gotten it yet. Yes, yes, everyone, please go get vaccinated, go get boosted. Okay, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, thanks for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about defending American democracy one year after the January 6th insurrection with George Mason University scholar Sheikha Dalmia. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I am really glad that you have joined us. Yesterday, of course, was the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol as lawmakers were preparing to certify the results of the November 2020 election. It was a an incredible day, one that I think none of us who are alive now will ever be able to forget. Yesterday, of course, President Joe Biden and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris went to the Capitol to speak about what we have learned, what we should be learning a year since that happened. I want to take a quick listen, short listen, to some of what President Joe Biden said. For the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol. But they failed. They failed. On this day of remembrance, we must make sure that such attack never, never happens again. So the president's speech yesterday took me a little by surprise in the aggressive nature that he took in the finger pointing that he undertook with the former president, Donald Trump, and with his really stark appeal to Americans to be different, to think differently about our differences and the way we relate to each other. We want to spend the rest of the hour today talking about the anniversary of January 6th, looking back on this violent attempt to overturn an American presidential election, and looking forward to the ways that we need to protect and maintain our democracy moving forward. And we've got a great guest with us to talk about all of this. Sheikha Dalmia is a visiting fellow with George Mason University's Mercatus Center, where she has started a new program to study and resist the rise of right-wing populist authoritarianism around the world and here in America. Sheikha, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. It's a pleasure. So I, I first want to get your reaction to the speeches we heard yesterday. Vice President Harris invoked uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor and the 2011 terrorist attacks in New York and in Washington. Uh, President Biden talked very tough about uh, former President Donald Trump and the people who remain loyal to him. Was this the right message for that day? And is it perhaps, uh, is it something that could be effective in getting people to really take this more seriously on the right than they have so far? Um, You know, one can quibble a little bit here and there about the analogies that were used, but I think overall uh, conveying the seriousness of what happened last year is of immense importance. Uh, Our country is so polarized at this time that it's unclear that anybody on the Democratic side who uh, uh, gives this message to the right be heard the response to President Biden's speech, right? 
um, Lindsey Graham uh, went out and made a, the same Lindsey Graham who actually condemned what happened on January 6th last year in no uncertain terms is now walking it back. Uh, yesterday, he accused President Biden of politicizing the event, uh, which is kind of mind boggling, right? That uh, politicizing a political event, I mean, merely speaking about that day of infamy and uh, not allowing it to be memory hold, which is what a lot of the right would want, is politicizing the event. The only Republicans present at the speech yesterday were Liz Cheney and Dick Cheney. Uh, it just shows you just how partisan the whole thing has become, that even our, you know, a bedrock institution like the peaceful transfer of power is not something that the two sides can come together on. And that is an extremely, extremely dangerous moment. So you have been writing and talking an awful lot about all of this and, and uh, well before uh, January 6th of last year, in fact, uh, you've been warning about not just the the rise of authoritarianism, but this problem, I, I think, that, that exists almost exclusively on the right side of the political spectrum in this country with the idea of playing fairly in the democracy, the idea that elections are, are held, you win, you lose, but the system... Uh, kind of goes on. And there, there, there's a re refusal to accept that, not just among uh, Republican voters and conservatives, but increasingly among uh, Republican office holders who refuse to accept uh, the idea that uh, they could lose uh, in, in, a, in a fair election. Uh, talk about, I guess, where we are on January 6th of 2022 uh, with that. I, you know, th these ceremonies at the Capitol yesterday kept referring to um, uh, th th this issue as it relates to, to office holders, but most of the Republicans who uh, serve in the Capitol weren't even there for, uh, for those ceremonies and, and have refused to take part. Uh, in that in that remembrance, uh, it, it seems as though this is a problem is getting worse, not better. Right. No, I think it's absolutely getting worse rather than better. I mean, there was a moment of national clarity just in the immediate aftermath of uh, the attack last uh, year. Right. I mean, you had uh, all the major. Republican leaders, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, uh, issuing very scathing statements against uh, President Trump and what he was doing over there, the insurrection that he was um, instigating. They have all walked it back. And if you look at the Republican base, there are more Republicans who think today that the election was stolen from President Trump uh, than, uh, they, than in the immediate aftermath of the attack. It just shows that the problem is growing and there are more Republicans today who want Trump to be re-elected than then. All of this shows that we are in a very terrible moment and this is not going away anytime soon. 2024 is going to be... Uh, you know, in some ways, I mean, and maybe I'm, I hope I'm going to be proven wrong about this. It's going to be more contentious. It's going to be nastier. The potential for political violence, in my view, is probably going to be higher. Perhaps we'll be more prepared for it and might be able to contain it. But the sentiment out there, the anger on the right, um, is just kind of breathtaking right now. You know, it used to be the case that the left was the one that had no trust in the American system, right? The system is flawed and, uh, you know, we should tear it down. I mean, that was like a left in 60s kind of thing. Now, all of that in a very, very uh, distorted way has now gone to the right. And it's just unclear how to deal with it. Uh, my... Um, you know, uh, 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 what, the, the thing that completely every day I wake up and 
think I'm living in some kind of a surreal reality, right? I mean, the 2020 election was the best election that this country has ever, ever held. It was the most secure election. It was the most accessible election. It was the most smooth election. And it was run at an extraordinarily difficult time when the country was facing a pandemic. There was civil unrest. And the and even as we had to adjust to the pandemic, the pandemic was making it difficult for us to adjust because there were not enough poll workers. We had run out of money during the primaries. And yet America managed to put on a spectacular show in that it has withstood, you know, withstood the, the most intense kind of scrutiny. And yet here we are. 70% of the Republican uh, uh, of Republicans don't believe that this election legitimately belongs to Joe Biden. I mean, where do you go from there? The disinformation campaign against our institutions is so intense at this stage that till in my view, you know, what should we do about democracy and to protect our democracy? Uh, till we get a hold on this disinformation campaign that is coming from the right, it's just hard to see where we go from here. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Shika Dalmia, who is a visiting fellow with George Mason University's Mercatus Center, where she started a new program to study and resist the rise of right-wing populist authoritarianism around the world. And here in America, we're talking about yesterday's anniversary of the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Where were you? And what were you doing when you saw the images of this violent white supremacist inspired uh, insurrection at the Capitol last year? What went through your mind? What were you feeling? Did you feel like something like this was even possible in the United States? Do you think maybe it's still possible or maybe even more possible than it was a year ago. What do you think needs to happen to strengthen our democracy, make it more resilient against attempts to undermine the will of voters, and to move us away from this incredible uh, acrimony that exists between right and left? Uh, also, what do you think it's going to take to convince Republicans, Republican voters, and Republican office holders to walk away from this really destructive line of thinking and talking uh, about democracy as though uh, it's, it is one-sided, that uh, if one side wins, it's fine. If that side doesn't win, somehow it was corrupt uh, and indefensible. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Ashika, before we get to uh, listeners and, uh, and and their comments. Uh, I, I want to give you a chance to talk just a little about uh, January 6th of 2021. Uh, you live in Washington and you live not far from the U.S. Capitol. Um, take us back to a year ago and tell us what your experience was like. Yeah, so it's very interesting, Stephen. So I was watching, uh, uh, my husband and I were watching the, uh, the, you know, the joint session of Congress and we were, uh, the certification process. And then uh, on television news started filtering in that there was this mob gathering uh, at the Capitol building. And we live actually just 12 blocks from there. And so as my report, re reporter's instincts kicked in and I told my husband, you know, why should we watch this on TV? Let's just go and check it out. At that point, the violence had not really started. And we walked, so we walked uh, 12 blocks. We were on the south side of the Capitol building. And that was the side that was actually not breached in quite the way that the other side was, the mall side was. There were about uh, three or 400,000 people gathered even on our side. And they were all clearly very, very worked up. Uh, the steps that lead up to the building, uh, which are usually off limits, there are always cops standing over there, the Capitol Police preventing people from going up there. 
that had completely been breached. The police was just standing down. There were hordes of people all over the steps. This was not a, it was a passionate crowd. It wasn't a particularly violent crowd, although we did see some uh, guns among uh, the attendees over there. Um, and it was, it was really, really a remarkable scene. And I overheard some of the conversations and the people there were genuinely scared that if Biden is allowed to assume office, he is going to take away their guns. He is going to impose a new regime of political correctness. And basically, it will be an Antifa takeover, which just shows you the power of disinformation, right? I mean, these people were acting, you know, because they genuinely believed that the democracy was in, their democracy was in trouble if Biden takes over, even though he was the legitimate winner Every court challenge against him had been rejected by Trump judges, many Trump appointees, or at least Republican appointees, and yet there was no convincing them that this was a fair outcome and that the certification process should continue as planned. They really did want to stop uh, Biden from uh, assuming office. I mean, it was really remarkable. Yeah. Uh, and did you ever feel like uh, something like that would happen? in this country, in this age, this idea that a fair number of U.S. citizens would converge on a place like the Capitol, break into the place, and do the things that we saw uh, people doing. I mean, the, the level of shock, I think, still, for me, is, is just overwhelming. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in India, right, which is not as mature as a, or an old democracy like the United States. And you routinely have uh, people in the parliament who will, uh, you know, from both sides, who will get into fisticuffs over some uh, policy question or whatever. But even in India, you know, we have never seen scenes like this where you have a mob of citizens who are attacking their own government uh, to overthrow it. I mean, that, uh, you know, those scenes are rare, even in weak republics, even banana, uh, you know, banana republics, those scenes are kind of rare. And to think that this, you know, proud, old, mature democracy, um, you know, with this uh, incredibly rich, a uh, 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 body of, uh, you know, uh, the uh, knowledge that the founders created, right? I mean, the uh, the Federalist Papers are just sort of like brilliant documents about the wonders of democracy and keeping tyranny at bay through liberalism and uh, peaceful transfer of power. And to have those bedrock institutions that we all thought we all believed in, regardless of our politics, to be vandalized. I mean, I don't know what other word there is, but vandalized in this fashion. I mean, it is just mind boggling. And like I said, I wake up every morning thinking I'm living in some kind of a surreal alternative reality. This doesn't seem like America to me. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about the one year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. We want to hear from you on the phones and on social media as well. Rachel in Ann Arbor, Kat in Beverly Hills, Anthony in Southwest Detroit. We will get to you when we get back. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We've also got a number of social media comments on Twitter that will work into the conversation. If you want to uh, let us know what's on your mind there, it's a great way to participate in the show as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest right now is Sheikha Dalmia. She is 
visiting fellow with George Mason University's Mercatus Center, where she has started a new program to study and resist the rise of right-wing authoritarianism around the world here and here in America. We're talking about the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. Uh, the memorials of it yesterday, the talk as we go forward uh, in this country. How do we uh, fight against the big lie, for instance, the, the perpetual statements from the former president and his supporters that suggest that uh, the 2020 election was somehow corrupt and that the outcome is not acceptable because of that corruption. There has not been a shred of credible evidence produced to suggest that. In fact, just the opposite has been confirmed by lots of independent reviews of that election that uh, this was the the most effective election perhaps carried out in American history. Uh, very few problems, uh, very little things to worry about, and no instances of the kind of fraud that uh, Donald Trump talks about. And yet you have lots of people who are still clinging to that idea and uh, uh, managing their political outlook, managing uh, in some cases, their jobs when they are elected to public office uh, accordingly. How are we supposed to move past that? How are we supposed to get to a place where we can actually have a conversation about the policy differences that we have uh, rather than talking about the legitimacy or the illegitimacy of each side? I want to hear from you during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019 uh, is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. I want to read some of the social media comments that we've gotten so far. Um, RZS on Twitter says, I'll never forget how I felt when I saw the Camp Auschwitz t-shirt. It broke my heart. I was shaken to my core. Why so much hate? Why were they looking at the world so differently than I do? I couldn't believe that our president could let this happen. Uh, afraid. Ed on Twitter says, my thoughts last year watching on TV was of the world and our allies who already had doubts about us under Trump. What's gonna happen now with their support for our country. Uh, and Big Neo asks on Twitter, what's the best way to interact with folks who believe the falsehood that the election was stolen and that the events of January 6th are lies? A really great question and one that uh, is really at the center of this conversation. Again, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. And you can go to Twitter or Facebook, put comments there. We'll include you that way. Let's start today on the phones with Rachel in Ann Arbor. Rachel, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh huh. Um, so my issue has to do with the fact that so much of the information that people are getting, if they are only watching, for instance, like if you have somebody who's only watching Fox News and they are receiving a distorted view of what's going on, or even just blatant outright lies, um, I think that something should be done in that regard. You know, FCC is responsible for making sure that what's being told in news stations is accurate, and I don't know how to put teeth in that or what needs to be done, because if you're only looking at it from what you're seeing on Fox News, um, you know, Tucker Carlson, you're thinking that that's exactly what's happening and not knowing that what you're receiving is a very distorted view of the world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Rachel, it's a great question. I, I got to say, I don't have an answer. Uh, and I think right now there isn't a lot of there aren't a lot of people who have answers uh, to that. It, it, you know, the 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 need to convince people that what they're what they're thinking and what they're reading is wrong uh, is is part of a democracy, right? Uh, we can't just 
uh, eliminate those people's voices from the process. We can't say that they can't vote, for instance. We can't uh, kick them out of the country or, or whatever uh, consequence you might dream up for them. But at the same time, it's, it's become more and more difficult to have the kind of interaction with people who believe this um, that that leads to anything productive. And so I, I just, I guess I don't know what we're supposed to do. I mean, I keep trying uh, with with people who who uh, repeat the big lie or or who believe those things to to try to to try to convince them that they're wrong. But uh, it's it's banging your head against a wall for sure. Ashika, what, what are we to make of that challenge and the inability to move the needle? Uh, no, it's a great question. And, you know, I'm not sure I have any better answers than you have, uh, Stephen. Uh, um, I do think that uh, getting the FCC involved in uh, determining what is factual and not factual uh, in news outlets is an extremely dangerous exercise. Because just imagine if Trump were to become president and control the FCC, what kind of outfits he would uh, shut down by, you know, if he had the power to do so. So that's a, you know, really double-edged sword and a dangerous one. And I uh, really would not recommend it. Uh, but the task is so extraordinarily difficult because I actually just posted uh, the story on my Substack, the unpopulist that you should all subscribe to. It's free um, about a Marisopa County recorder in Arizona. And Marisopa County is the fourth largest county in the country. And uh, Arizona was, of course, the swing state in, in 2020. And the recorder over there, who was a Republican, name is Stephen uh, Rich, he uh, was one of the people who was confronted by a MAGA mob who wanted him to find the votes for Donald Trump and was claiming, this mob was claiming that uh, votes, had been, votes had been taken away from uh, Trump, that entire databases of Republican voters had been eliminated, that the computer system of Marisopa County was connected to the web and hackers were actually switching the votes from, uh, uh, from Trump to Biden. I mean, just crazy conspiracy theories, and he tried to just speak to the MAGA mob, which uh, harassed him, targeted him. I mean, he needed police protection to be able to just do his job and speak the truth. And so when you have a side that's attacking people on its own side who are speaking truth and conveying facts, how do you get through, how does the opposition get through to people like that, right? I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, the good news is actually Jonathan Rausch, who is a scholar at the Brookings Institution, has written this book called The Constitution of Knowledge and Defense of Truth, where he actually outlines uh, some of the disinformation tactics that demagogues and authoritarian rulers, especially people like Putin in Russia, have forever deployed um, to uh, clog the, you know, the information mechanisms of a democracy or of a country so that you can't really tell truth from lies. I mean, you know, you address one lie and they come up with a new one and you just simply can't keep up at an epistemic level, the epistemic infrastructure that we have kind of breaks down because they just inject us with sort of this, you know, one lie after another. And how do you deal with it is extremely, extremely difficult. Um, I do think over a period of time, we'll kind of like figure it out. I think uh, ultimately, you know, I have like faith in human nature and I have faith in America and Americans. And I think uh, some of the, you know, the extremists will just simply get marginalized and overlooked without us having to shut them down and good sense will prevail. The big question is if our system survives before that happens, right? I mean, right now, it just seems like we are at such a dangerous juncture where there is no control on the spigot of disinformation and we don't know how to turn it off. Um, so, it, you know, but what we what is good is that there are people like this Marisopa recorder who are speaking up, who are not, uh, you know, getting intimidated by uh, 
you know, a, a campaign of harassment against them and are continuing to do their job. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what we have to kind of uh, put our faith in, just a few honest people who can hold this tide of disinformation. Sure. sure. Uh, Rachel, again, thanks very much for the call. Uh, and the uh, insight and the questions. Uh, let's go next to Kat in Beverly Hills. Kat, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Um, I The first thing <clears throat> uh, from your earlier question I thought of was uh, Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, written back in the 1930s. Um, <clears throat> you know, all the way back then, we dealt with the same issue uh, a rise of fascism in the United States. You know, there was a, a huge fascist rally at Madison Square Garden um, with big posters of uh, George Washington and, and in support of Nazi Germany and in opposition to us supporting the Allies in the war. And, um, you know, it was true then and it's true now. When the insurrection happened, I was at work. Uh, I worked at a pizza place at the time. And I remember you know, checking my phone in between work and just thinking, wow, this could actually like be the end of the United States as we know it. Um, I did not have the confidence that uh, they were going to be able to stop it. I'm glad that they did. Uh, but uh, it was, I don't think a lot of people saw it coming. I certainly yeah. didn't see it coming. Um, but, you know, I think that it, has a lot to do with the Republicans being, um, you know, it's, it, I think it's a strong reaction to them losing their, uh, or the, the, the wave of, uh, voting rights, um, sure. Activism that has come forth and tried to reverse, uh, the way that, you know, they've gerrymandered and, Cat, sure. uh, I, I, I don't want to cut you off, but I want to get to some other listeners and and, and back to our guests before uh, we have to end. But I, but I really appreciate the the insight and especially that historical reference. I think those are really important right now to try to put what's happening today in in context. Uh, let's go quickly next to Anthony in Southwest Detroit. Anthony, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Good morning. Well, I mean, I thought it was a little over the top for me because. You know, among other things, Biden mentioned the rule of law, but I say that if there's any rule of law, they wouldn't have had former Vice President Dick Cheney there. That man would be dragged before the International <laughs> Criminal Court. So the whole thing was a sham to me. Yeah, you know, Anthony, I, I, I have to say I was a little shocked by that, too. I'm not a fan of Dick Cheney or the things that he did when he was vice president, the things that he's done since then, frankly. Uh, the, 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 the war criminal... Um, uh, tag, I think, fits him in, in, in a lot of ways. And, I, you know, at, at the same time, he was the Republican who showed up to condemn all of this. He was the one who says, you know, this is not okay. And I think the challenge, again, is if, you, if you're going to turn away from the Republicans who are willing to question this stuff, then what are what are we left with? Who are we left with? And and if you're not going to try to 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 extend uh, the the sort of critical mass of people who understand that this is a lie and that January sixth is absolutely not an acceptable way to express any political uh, opinion in this country. Um, then, then we're we're kind of at an impasse. I mean, I I, I don't know how you get past that, uh, Sheikha. I wonder what you make of yeah. Dick Cheney's yeah, role I mean, yesterday. Right. I mean, you know, I hear the uh, the the uh, commenter, and I I mean, I I get it, but you know. And this is kind of, I think, the one reason that we are at this polarized juncture is that we have set up purity tests for each other, right? We will work for you with you only if you agree 100% on everything that we believe in. And if you don't, well, then you're obviously a bad person. Now, Dick Cheney has a lot to answer for. I think my test on whom I'm going to collaborate with in our current moment is, 
are you a liberal Democrat and willing to defend our system and liberalism or are you not? Mm. All my other policy disagree. So basically, I have a floor. And when you say liberal Democrat, you're saying uh, small d. Not small d. Small yeah. d. Do you support our, our you, know, cla- you know, classical liberal system of government uh, with its checks and balances, its peaceful transfer of power, its, uh, you know, tradition of uh, protecting individual rights and keeping uh, government at bay? And we can argue about exactly what that means. But in broad brushstrokes, do you support that or not? And are you a bigot or, bigot or not, right? I mean, so I have like a floor uh, you know, for who I will collaborate with, not like a ceiling. I am not <laughs> prescribing purity tests uh, for who I will collaborate with. This is, you know, the issues right now are too basic. They are too fundamental. And, and everybody, anybody who sees those issues in that way, I'm willing to collaborate with. And um, so I, I get what the caller is saying. But I think we need to think about our current moment differently because we are, the states, stakes right now are existential. And when the stakes are existential, you have to think differently of, uh, you know, how we've been thinking of politics. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Shika Dalmia, always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. And listeners, uh, you really should check out her Substack, The Unpopulist. There's a lot of really interesting Uh, work there about this uh, particular issue uh, all the time. So, uh, Shika, again, thanks very much for for joining us. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Appreciate it. And thanks for picking up this extremely important issue. Yeah. Okay. That's going to do it for us today. Uh, We'll be back on Monday. Um, We're going to talk a little about the James Webb Telescope, which I have been really eager to talk about with listeners. I am really excited about this huge leap forward in astronomical technology and capability. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday. <laughs>